1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 1, going to verse 21. Follow along with me, please, if you will. This is the word of the Lord. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. He arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling it as as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not Restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. I said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And we hold it in our hands this morning. What a privilege. Do you notice in this story how things seem to take a pretty dark turn? Do you notice that at the start of this, we're introduced again to Samuel doing what he's been doing for now two chapters. And we have what is in truth, I think, rather a funny story. 
in a lot of ways. I know we don't expect to find humor in, in the Bible. Maybe you have to have a kid who gets up a couple times in the middle of the night to find the humor in this. If my three-year-old or six-year-old walked into my room in the middle of the night and said, you called me, I don't know what I'd say. Are you kidding me? Why am I calling you in the middle of the night? I am trying to sleep. Get out of here. Go back to bed. As amazing as it would be if they came the first time, imagine the second time. Here I am. You called me. What? Go to bed. And you might think, do I need to lock the door? It's a funny story. Samuel seems to already be predisposed in one sense to hearing the call of Eli in the middle of the night. And that's where our illustration breaks down a little bit. You remember Eli is no spring chicken. In chapter 4, we'll see he's 98 years old. It's possible that he's pretty close to that age now. Not a whole lot of time necessarily going to pass, but we'll see. Eli's old. And Samuel, hearing this voice, it makes sense that he might presume that this was Eli. He's an older man, not able to take care of himself. Maybe, maybe he's hot, he's cold, he, he needs a drink of water, whatever it might be. Samuel is so ready to assist. It's pretty admirable. This doesn't surprise us at all, though, because verse 1 says, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. This is exactly what we see in chapter 2, the same thing. The boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord. This is what he was not only commissioned or appointed to do, this is what he was born to do. Do you remember the story of Samuel's birth? I hope you can't forget because it was only two chapters ago. It's only one page turned in your Bible. Hannah had no children. She was sad. She wondered what the Lord was doing. What was his purpose in not allowing me to become a mother, Hannah would, thought, would think. She comes to a place in a moment of worship where she says, okay, the Lord is in charge here. And no matter what's going on around me, I can trust him. That if my heart is leaning towards him, is, is seeking him, that he's not going to look at me and say, you're not worthy of being part of my plan. Hannah found contentment in her barrenness. And she was granted a child. And her barrenness suddenly had an explanation because this child wasn't going to be like any other ordinary child. This child was set apart from his birth to do this amazing task of being sent into the temple to be a part of the priestly ministry. But ultimately what we'll see here today as we read in the end, look again, verse 19, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, the whole country knew that Samuel was established as a prophet. It kind of bugs me sometimes when people throw this prophet term around. I've even received some business cards before. People saying, my name's Prophet Billy Joe Robinson. Or whatever. It bothers me a little bit because that's not something to be taken lightly. I know that perhaps some might say, well, goodness, Nick, you're here. You're, you're a prophet. You're proclaiming the word of God. But that kind of title, that kind of unique position, it's very distinct. It's very pointed towards a time where God's word was rare. Do you remember that from the beginning of our reading this, past, this morning? The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Things were not good. And our call from this passage, as we're thinking about this heading of the call of God's word, 
It seems appropriate to mention that every week I try to put in my sermon outline this word, call. Because you're not allowed, Christian, to come to church on Sunday, hear the word of God, and do nothing in light of it. I might even add, even if the sermon isn't that good. If we are people of the word, it is enough for us to hear it and to do it. Getting from the hearing to the doing is difficult, is it not? That's the hardest thing. That's what keeps me up at night, particularly on Saturday nights. Particularly last night when the clocks moved forward and I was awake for that part. I hope you weren't awake for that part last night. But I came to a point where I realized it is not 11 o'clock, it is 12 o'clock. Seems like we don't have enough time to quite get from that hearing to the doing, to the, the time that it would take to, to parse God's word carefully and, and to apply it specifically and do all those kinds of things. And there's a hope for us, though, that in this call to draw near and hear the word of God, we do not do so alone. God does not send us his word the way we send a letter to somebody across the country. When he sends us his word, he sends us his very power. Nathan read for us earlier from one of my favorite passages in the Psalms, where, God's, where the psalmist rather says to God, you have exalted above all things your name and your, what? You could guess it, your word. You've exalted your word above all things. And so, yes, our purpose on Sunday mornings will be to exalt the word of God in light of what our Heavenly Father has already done. And to trust him that as we exalt him in it, that we can't say, "Eh, this is too far for me, this is too far removed from my life, I, I don't understand it, I don't know what to do. His call this morning is simple. Draw near and hear. The power of God's word begins in his changing power. Remember, we sang this with our ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. Sounds a little kumbaya-ish, but it's true. This is what God's word does. You don't walk away from God's word unchanged, even if your experience would tell you so. I've said it before, but it's one of my favorite sermon illustrations to steal from Paul Washer. He came and preached one time, and he said, if I came into this room and I was an hour late and I was all dressed, my tie was done, I'm all here and ready to preach, and I tell you, I'm really sorry, I was run over by a semi-truck on the way here. He said, you would laugh. You wouldn't believe me. You would call me a liar. How in the world could I be run over by a semi-truck and then appear, even an hour later, unscathed and unchanged? You can't have an encounter with a semi-truck in that way and be unchanged by it. So how do we then leave God's word, and I'm not just talking about on Sunday morning, but I'm talking about on Monday morning, on Tuesday afternoon, on Wednesday night, whenever you come to God's word, how is it then that we leave God's word and imagine that I don't really get anything out of that. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The starting point is that God is changing you through your consistent reading of God's word. So church, do not be discouraged in your reading plan, whether it's on the back table or whether it's something else you're doing, however you're engaging with God's word, have the confidence that he is changing you by it. But let's get back to our passage. We've seen in chapters one and two, Samuel's devotion. We've seen Eli's son's disregard towards God. And then we see the effect of such disregard in verse one. 
The word of God was rare in those days. This word rare means precious. It was not common to receive a word from God. Now, at this time, we've only gotten as far as, they've only gotten as far as we have in our Bibles on the left side right now, right? So certainly, we're not talking about, you know, there wasn't enough printing presses back then. The majority of the Bible had not been written yet. In fact, the majority of what happens in the Bible hadn't been done yet. We're very early on. The law has been delivered, yes. But the handling of the people of God, particularly of the leaders of God, towards the word of God, had made the word of God a rare thing in those days. So I have a question for you to think about. Is the word of God rare in these days that we live in? You might say, yes, it is rare. And you might say, no, it's not. I've got it right here. I'm looking over at somebody next to me who also has their Bible open, and and I can look back on the back table, and and you can go online and find out that 85% of American homes own a Bible. 85%. That's pretty high. Word of God isn't rare, is it? Well, let's go back to that yes answer. The word of God might be in 85% of the houses. And as I look out the windows right now and I just think, chances are all these houses that I see across the street, there's a Bible in there. Is it being read? The same statistic or the same source says there's an average of 4.3. I don't know how you have 0.3 Bibles in your home, but 4.3 Bibles per home on average. But are they being read? Look at verse 2 to find yet another thing that we can relate to in these days. The word of God was rare, and at verse 2 we see that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. In the practical, in the midst of this story, you kind of look at it, it doesn't really matter that Eli's eyesight is going. It's nighttime anyway, right? He's not seeing anything anyhow. But the author, I don't think, lets us have these words such as his eyesight growing dim or in verse 3, the lamp of God not going out without us seeing a hint of a deeper reality that Eli's physical eyesight was reminiscent of his spiritual eyesight. That his handling of the word and his ability to perceive the word of God had dimmed greatly. These same homes that average 4.3 Bibles per home supposedly, according to these statistics, are also home to only 36% of people in America who read their Bible one time a year. Thank you. Somebody should say wow to that. Same statistics again. 30% of those people who own a Bible are reading it once a week. Now, the wrong thing to do with these statistics is to say, hey, I I fall somewhere between that once a week and once a year round. Pretty good, right? The thing that's kind of amazing about this is that if if what we believe about the Bible is true, then one of the greatest tragedies and ironies is that nobody's opening it up to read it. Nobody's receiving the power that is in these words. Eli shows us, even the leadership of the religious folk of the day, the eyesight's grown dim. Looks pretty bleak. Word of God seems rare. 
in one sense, again, we say the word of God isn't rare. We have a ton of Bibles. But, but the preaching of the word of God, the application of the word of God, the acceptance and obedience to the word of God, is that rare in the world around you? And dare I ask, is it rare in your life? Verse 3, again, another seemingly unnecessary detail, but perfectly necessary to us. Verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. This is referring to one of the lamps that was in the temple area, the, um, the place where the ark was, and all the adornments that we, discussed, that we um, learned about in Sunday school a couple of years ago. The lamp of, the God, lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. My favorite preacher of all time for the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, I'm sure he has a sermon on just verse 3 about the lamp of God not going out. What an encouraging thing for us to consider in the day and age where the application, the hearing, the preaching, the obedience to God's word seems rarer and rarer, though the word is plenteous, it is an encouraging thought for us to know that the light of God has not gone out, church. Boy, times are dark and you're going to go home and you're going to get on social and you're going to watch the news and you're going to hear about these things and you're just going to wonder why won't people just turn to God and is God doing anything? The lamp of God has not yet gone out. Not for the country's sake and not for your own sake. The light shines. Verses 4 through 9, the Lord calls a young Samuel who doesn't yet know the Lord. We don't know exactly how old Samuel is here, but he's a boy still, the Hebrew says. So we should take that as an encouragement that he was not very learned yet. He's in the first part of his time of his ministry before the Lord. And it is indeed Samuel through whom God is preparing salvation. Because the transition is clear. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, comma, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, concerned to draw near to the word of God. Whereas Eli, in contrast, is lying in his own place, which doesn't necessarily sound like a bad thing. I don't really want everybody to come back to the church tonight at 10 o'clock and look for a place to throw a sleeping bag. That's not the application we should get from this. But there is an illustrative point to be made here. One is near to the presence of God and one is far. One is hearing the voice of God. One cannot even see his hand in front of his face. And so Samuel is being called as a boy. Entry-level position, church. Samuel was not a seminary graduate at this point. He was just starting out. The word of God is not a call for the super elite religious of the day. Obviously, Eli has dismissed that call entirely anyway. The call is to the child of God whose heart says, I want to draw near to him. So where's your heart today? It's fascinating that during these three calls of the Lord in Samuel's ears, it's the third one where the author says, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times. There's a difference in this third call. It's been activated in one sense by the truth of God being applied. Because what does Samuel do the first two times? He goes to Eli. You called me, what's up? Nothing? All right. You called me, what's up? Nothing? Okay. The second time Eli says, it might be the Lord. What should you do if God's calling out to you? 
It's so simple. What a wonderful thing. We open up this word and we, we talk about the mystery of it and how difficult it is to follow God's laws and, and how hard it is to discern God's will. But what is it that he wants you to do this morning? Say, speak, Lord. Your servant listens. I love the Christian life encapsulated in Samuel's instruction. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. Your servant hears. Well, he gets the message, and the message is rough. That's where this big contrast happens. It goes from this wonderful story of Samuel growing and understanding the voice of God to then getting the message of God, and it's not a gospel. It's not a good news. It is more bad news. It is a rehashing of what we read in chapter 2, where this nameless prophet comes to Eli's house and declares judgment is coming. Now Samuel is tasked with the point afterwards to say, Eli, what has been told to you is going to happen. And the scariest part of his message, did you see it? There's nothing you can do about it. No sacrifice can be offered to atone for your sin. Enough is enough. My mercy, oh, my mercy has run out. That is a terrifying thing for us to consider, church. Especially for God who is in other places in Scripture defined as the one who is abounding in mercy and steadfast love. It's run out for Eli and his household. This is what little Samuel gets to tell him in the middle of the night, rather the next morning. So we see in the beginnings of verse 15, as this message has been received, Samuel lay until morning. Again, I think the author is pointing out, he didn't say Samuel slept until morning. How do you sleep after that? I think Samuel loves Eli. I think Eli is kind of a big dummy a lot of the times. But it seems that there's an affection here that keeps Samuel's eyes open, staring at the ceiling, thinking, how am I going to say this? I was so excited when I realized God was speaking to me, and now I have to say this to the one I call my father, the one who calls me his son. Scary, sad, unfortunate, but true. He opens the doors, just as the word goes out, so shall he. Verses 19 through 20, after um, Eli has received the words, we shift back to Samuel. We shift back to the good news. Samuel's growing. The Lord is with him. He let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from everywhere knew that he was a prophet. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The call of God's word to us this morning is a call to continue receiving it. It may be important for us to apply today. What is your call from God's word? Maybe go to 2 Timothy 3.16. God's purpose in the call of his word to us has a lot to do with the nature of God's word. Paul, generations later, would write to the disciple Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Church, what do you need today from God's word? God's word has what you need, I promise you. Even in chapter three this morning, whatever you came to, and maybe you, you read along with me and you were like, this is one of those sermons I'm gonna chew down of because this is not what I need this morning. I guarantee you it's what God, what God has determined you need this morning. Not because I picked it, that's not the point. All I get to do is go, I think Samuel's a really great book and it's God's word. It can't go wrong with it. Let's preach through Samuel. I think that's part of how God directs us. It sounds crazy and you might not like it, but this is where we are. 
And through his word this morning, his desire is to give you something that is profitable, something that's going to teach you, something that's going to reproof you, correct you, and train you in righteousness. Because whatever it is that you need to do this week, who you are is more important than what you do. God's word deals with your heart, as we'll see as a recurring theme in 1 Samuel. Again, in chapter 2, verse 35, as we looked at last week, the hope of that terrible judgment at the end was that God would raise up a high priest for himself who would do all that is in the Lord's heart. We'll see that later on when God chooses David. David is a man who is after God's own heart, has a heart like his. What's our problem with all of this? Your outline says, that we often leave ourselves open to apathy or fear when it comes to God's word, particularly when it comes to the call of God's word, to the the intention of God to bring about in us an action of obedience in response to God's word. We're often open to those two things that we'll see in our two characters this morning, apathy or fear. I told you before that I taught middle school for five years and I loved teaching middle school. And as I was thinking about this idea of apathy and fear, and fear, it didn't take me long to consider what middle schoolers deal with in their education. And that so often, the thing that detracts them from learning and growing and doing are these two very things. I had plenty of students in middle school who were just apathetic. They didn't care. They didn't see the importance of studying history, studying English, studying the Bible, learning spelling words, or whatever it is that we might be doing that day. I saw apathy, but I also saw fear. There were plenty of students who were struggling. It wasn't because they didn't care, but because they had absolutely zero confidence that what was set before them was something they could accomplish. As their teacher, I wanted to say, what do you think I'm trying to do here? One of the things that bothered me the most in education was how students, and not only students, but parents, had this perception of some teachers that if your class is hard, then you must be calling students to something that they're not ready for yet. And so fear takes root in the heart. Apathy takes root in the heart. Let's look at Eli's problem first. Which was his? Was it apathy or fear? I'll just tell you it was apathy. Fear that, or rather apathy, (laughs) which basically resorts to the idea that other things have taken a higher priority than the call of God's word. For Eli, it was a matter of his sons. We're unfortunately, in one sense, unfortunately, we're not done hearing about the terrible wickedness of Eli's household. This isn't the end of that. We actually have a, a couple more passages, another chapter of this to deal with. So we'll go more into um, what was wrong with Eli's parenting. But he, in one sense, has let his, let his children's happiness take higher priority than obedience to God's word. And what is terrifying about that is that his children's happiness was directly, in lo- directly contrary to the command of God's word. Now, don't get me wrong. We know this. Eli rebuked his sons in chapter two. He rebuked them. But what we have today in the word from Samuel to Eli is that God has said that he's going to punish them because his sons were blaspheming and he did not restrain them. He had a bigger task than simply saying, don't do that over there. 
His role was to be actively involved with the lives of his sons, particularly as they were serving the people of Israel, if you can even call it that. Eli's problem was apathy. Upon hearing this message, he says something that is true. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's a very theologically sound thing to say. If something happens in your life, very right thing to say. You know what? It's the Lord. Let him do what he is going to do. Think about Job. Upon his first issue of, uh, of all of his trials and struggles that he faced, losing his children, losing his livestock, what does he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Nevertheless, blessed be the name of the Lord. Good response, Job. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Eli didn't have the right response with this, though. Yeah, he threw some good theological truth at Samuel. He said, hey, it's the Lord. He's going to do whatever he wants. But here's what I think is revealed about Eli's heart in this. His apathy, which led him not to, at the end of chapter 2, say, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Show me what I need to do. Correct my children's heart. Only you can make these things right. That doesn't seem to happen in between chapter 2 and 3. He doesn't go as the psalmist does, as the psalmist says, to a God of whom his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Church, don't consider that your failings are so impossible to overcome that God has just simply said, I'm not even going to touch that. And thus end up like Eli, just saying, well, it's the Lord. He's going to do what he's going to do. I might be wrong on this, but I'm willing to at least throw this out to you as a possibility because I know that there is apathy in my heart at times in response to what God is doing. And rather than cling to the truth of who he is, knowing that he hasn't definitively spoken to me, no sacrifice is sufficient for you anymore, Nick. You're done. He hasn't spoken that to any of you, church. You don't know that at all. You don't know that his mercy isn't still overflowing towards you if you would just receive it. But our apathy makes us say, well, the Lord's just going to do what he's going to do. I'm the one who's messed this up anyway. Psalm 30, verse 5, again, his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. At this point where we are right now, there is no hope. But I think the reason that this message comes again is because when the first message came from the nameless prophet, Eli didn't fall on his face and cry out to God for mercy. So Samuel is tasked with solidifying the terrible fate. I think that there's a word to dads here this morning, that there's a danger of our inaction in the spiritual life of our children. Don't be inactive, dads. Don't be passive in the lives of your children, particularly as it comes to their relationship with God. And yet at the same time, dads, keep trying, keep pressing on, keep sharing the word, keep loving them like no other because the Lord is watching those efforts. He will honor them. It's not just for dads, it's for moms too. Moms need to hear that. Moms that are in the corner spiritually for their kids endure in that. Your job's not over until you take your final breath. And so your hope can't run out. You can't let the, 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 the fate of your adult children and, and where they've brought themselves today be something that leads you to hopelessness because it is God's mercy that you are to cast your hope on this morning. Eli didn't do that. And so he got to hear the fate that he in one sense had chosen for himself. That's Eli's problem. How about Samuel's problem? Samuel doesn't have a problem. He's a sweet little boy in this story, right? He does everything right. Well, he doesn't necessarily sin, but look at verse 10 again. 
I'm sorry, 15. Samuel lay until morning, staring at the ceiling, wondering about this message. When he approaches Eli, Eli says, what has he told you? Don't hide it from me. Why does he say don't hide it from me? Because in verse 15, Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. You ever afraid to do what God's word tells you to do? Why? We know why. People. We're afraid of people. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If I could wish away one thing in my ministry, I wish it was the fear of man. Just one thing. Just get it out of there. It's such a bothersome thing in our hearts. We're so afraid of what people are going to say or people are going to think or people are going to do in light of what we are trying to do in obeying God. But it's a trap, church. Wisdom tells us from Proverbs that if we trust in the Lord, we're safe. We're trusting in the Lord. We're listening to his call. We're walking in obedience. That's what he calls us to. That's where safety lies. And Eli, for all of the tragedy of this passage, gives good advice to Samuel on this. Don't hide anything of what God has said. This is not a call to obnoxious Christianity. I don't think that your response to this passage should involve you going downstairs, breaking into the children's craft closet, getting all your markers and poster board out, and then marching around who knows where, whatever you want, waving signs. This is a call to persistent, faithful, even in some cases quiet, yet strong and firm and confident persistence in what God's word has called you to, the context that he's called you to. Don't get online on Facebook and be like, I'm just going to put everybody on blast now. I'm going to hit everybody with the truth. I'm going to hit all the people who believe abortion is okay, all the people who are redefining marriage. I'm going to hit all... Forget about that. Work on what you've been avoiding in your life, what you're afraid of saying to that brother, sister, neighbor, cousin, that conversation you know you need to have. But don't go in kicking down the doors. Samuel lay until morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. I think between morning and then he opening the door, opened the doors, there was a search for peace. There was a search for confidence and courage that he found in the Lord. Not to go on and be like, Eli, I have a word for you. No. This is somebody he loved. This is somebody he looked at as a father who called him my son. I imagine Samuel comes in humility, yet in confidence before Eli and delivers this message to him in faithfulness to the Lord. But we're afraid of the consequences of these things. So how do you hide the word of God in your life? I often, when I write these questions down, I say, how are you in danger of hiding the word of God in your life? How is it possible that that might be happening? This week, I particularly wanted to say, I know I'm hiding God's word in my life in some areas. Maybe you are too. I'm not coming with a word of judgment. This isn't the same thing as what Samuel's doing. But I know that it is a very real fact that there are times that we come to God's word and we say, I don't want to do that, and I'm going to hide it. I'm going to pretend that it doesn't matter. I'm going to pretend it didn't say that. But if we don't, as Psalm 138.2 called us to, if we don't exalt the word of God as God does, then we are left just as Eli's sons were, despising the word of God, kicking against it, as chapter 2 showed us rejecting all of what 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 offers us. 
equipping, training in righteousness, correction, reproof, teaching, all these good things that God desires to do. He desires to do through his word in your life. And he especially, I think, desires to do them through the hard things that we say, can we wait until later to do that? Is there some other time? How are you hiding God's word, his glory, his goodness? Perhaps why we feel in some cases that he is silent. Perhaps in some cases why our answer to the rareness of the word of God was, yes, it is very rare. Part of why, and actually not just part of, the reason why the word of God was rare was because people were blind to it. They were actively blinding themselves as Eli was. Chapter 2, we talked about how God saw in Israel a need for a priest. Somebody who would go before God on behalf of people. And in chapter 3, we see how God reveals the power of his word through a prophet. Samuel established as a prophet. As one who foreshadows the one who is to come. The perfect prophet, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Who reveals the power of the word of God through the most surprising thing. Through the thing that he would have loved to, as he grew on this earth, to ignore about God's word, to hide away things like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and other places that talk about the crucifixion and the separation of the Father and the Son, how Christ would have been tempted to say, I'm going to be apathetic towards that, or I have too much fear towards that, I'm ignoring it. What was it that the devil tempted him in the wilderness to do? To gain everything that he was going to get from the cross through worshiping Satan instead through ignoring that hardest part. See, Christ doesn't come to us and say, hey, following the word, the call of the word is easy. All you have to do is, no, it's the opposite. He comes and is crucified. And it's not the physical crucifixion that was so such a terror to his soul in that garden that night. It was the cup of God's wrath. It was the spiritual reality of separation from the Father that he dreaded that moment so fiercely. Where the word of God is rare, however, God sends a prophet, and prophets always come with a hope of salvation. Yes, there was no salvation in this case for Eli. There was no turning back. Everything had been set. But is that true for you today? You don't know. You don't know if God's decided to withhold his mercy from you. And I'd be willing to say that if he hasn't directly told you that there's no sacrifice suitable for you, then you have every confidence that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not only sufficient for your fear, your apathy, your disobedience, but it is super sufficient. It abounds beyond what you could even think or imagine to do against God's word. And if you'd receive his sacrifice today, you would find that salvation. Christ at the cross suffered as a despiser so that he could speak the word to us and call us to obedience as a prophet. The need of our church today as a cross point, as the global church, is for spiritual growth and the advance of the mission. And we'll only have that through a renewal of conforming our hearts to the word of God. So are you blocking it out somehow today? Are you getting bored and ready for this to be over are you tired and hungry and ready for something else? Or are you willing to say, I know he's been jabbering for a long time, but I know this is what I need to do. The ministry of the prophet, the ministry of Christ is a ministry of grace. We need to believe that. We need to repent of it. Perhaps if we've never repented before, if we've never known exactly what that means to repent, if we know we need God in our lives, we know he is silent right now. 
Know that he's been speaking to you this morning. Know that there is a perfect hope that what he has for you, he has for you today in this moment. Reconciliation through Christ. And what for? Why does God reveal this power of his word at the cross, the fulfillment of all of it in that moment where Christ suffered and rose again? It's because we now need to be equipped in order to align our lives with the call of God's word. You know, sometimes, as I said earlier at the beginning, thinking about Samuel going into Eli's room in the middle of the night, there have been times, as you can imagine, parents, that the kids have wandered into our room. I'm thirsty. I had a nightmare. I made a big mess that you don't want to know about. (laughs) All sorts of things. When that little door opens and you hear the pitter-patter of tiny little feet, there's a trembling and a fear that overcomes you. And it's understandable because you don't know what's coming. Sometimes the girls wander in, not only to the, the bedroom in the middle of the night, but as I'm up late working in my office, which is, between, which is right next door to the girls' room, they'll wander in there because the light's still on. And even last night, my three-year-old comes in and says, Dad, why is your light on? And how I wanted to be like, because the lamp of God has not gone out. <laughs> you know, all right? In one sense, like, that's true, right? It's like, why is your light on? Why is music playing? Why are you sitting at your desk? It's really late at night. I was still there. Not because of some great high spiritual reason, probably in fear and trembling and wondering, what am I going to say tomorrow kind of thing. But in the middle of bedtime, the little one was able to go, hey, dad's still working. He's, he's still up. He's still here. He, he's here. He's close. He's not far. And so is the Lord for you. We say this often when we put our kids to bed and they're worried. They're worried about monsters under the bed. They're worried about being alone. They're worried about all those things. God is still working while you're sleeping. And he's still near, though your eyes are closed. What a great confidence that is for us to begin to receive the call of God's word. One of the best things I think we can do on a very practical level is to read before we go to sleep, to let God's word wash over us in one sense as we lay our heads to rest. And even as adults, we get scared sometimes, don't we? I'm going to stop working. I don't know how the world's going to keep spinning if I'm sleeping, right? If, if I'm not holding everything together, what's going to happen? Our faithful Father in heaven is taking care of it because the light is still on. The light of God has not gone out. John 1, 4 through 5, you remember it from a couple years ago. In him was life, and that life was the light of, of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That is the light of Christ. So are you ready to see? Are you ready to be equipped by God's word, by what Paul has offered us in 2 Timothy? Again, three sixteen and 17. Everything that we need is in God's word. And we have this wonderful testimony of what God's word does. In the end of our chapter this morning, in chapter 3, 19 through 21, what was Samuel's testimony? He grew. There was progress that was necessary evidence of God's work. The Lord was with him. The presence of God is our singular source for success in receiving his word. And none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. Oh, is that so often my prayer for somebody who talks too much for a living sometimes? None of his words fell to the ground. None of them were meaningless. God gave power to the words of Samuel. He'll give power to your words as well as you reside in his word. But he doesn't just give power to your words. He gives power to your hands to do the job that you have to start doing again tomorrow morning. To go have that conversation, to to fix the problem in the office, to do whatever it is. God is ready to empower you to do that. And you're going to find that, guess where? 
in his word. He was revealed by his word to Samuel, and so he is to us. Last thing, just three questions to put up on the PowerPoint. Do you believe Christ has brought you near for his glory? Do you believe God has given you his word for your good? And lastly, do you believe God has enabled you to obey his word without fear, without apathy? He's brought you near for his glory. That's the end goal of all of this. Not that we simply say, hey, I want to show off how much I know of the Bible. Rather, he's given us his word. He's brought us near to him so that we might be used for his purposes. Those other two questions I hope are helpful to you as you think about that it's for your good. That there's no greater good than receiving God's word and trusting the word of Christ. It's where faith comes from, Romans tells us. And that his word is powerful and enable us, enables us to put away our sin, to put away our apathy and fear, and to trust him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you this morning for the power of your word. And even as Isaiah says, you send forth your word and it accomplishes what it sets out to do. We thank you that Samuel has shown us that. And we thank you that Samuel has shown us uh, more than just a good example to follow, but he's shown us Christ. These things were written down for our learning so that we might look to you, Lord. Father, this morning, if there's anybody who doesn't know Christ, I pray the power of your word would so penetrate and transform, change the heart of the one who doesn't know you, and then it would do so in such a mysterious way. Like we've read before in John chapter 9 about the man who was born blind. He says, all I can say is that I used to be blind and now I see. My eyes have been opened. Or may we not be like Eli, apathetic towards the word. May we not struggle like Samuel did. May you meet us in our struggle with our fear of man, our fear of our own failings. Help us to trust in you and to walk with that confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.